according to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. We're almost ready for verse 12. We'll be in verse 11 this morning, and verse 12 if we get that far. A verse that many of us know because we heard Colonel Theme recite it 10,000 times over 50 years. The Word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. We're going to talk about that scalpel that uh, is translated sword there and discuss uh, some aspects on that. But uh, we've got to start there with verse 11. Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. And whether you read it in English or you read it in Greek and you look for footnotes or uh, fine print, um, there is no fine print. There's no exceptions. It says anyone, that no one will fall. And so if you're prideful and think, well, that doesn't include you, <laughs> or that, oh, well, you know, I'm a pastor, that wouldn't apply to me, or oh, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a deacon, or you know, just stop, okay? Just stop right there. It says no one. And that includes us. That's all of us. All right? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We're all vulnerable in falling in unbelief. So uh, this is what we're going to deal with here today. Diligence. Diligence to enter into rest. Before we begin, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Let's call upon our Father in His faithfulness to set aside our distractions, to humble us, to prepare our souls to receive His implanted truth. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, just thank you so much for this day, for your truth, for this book. It's my favorite book, Father, of all 66. Uh, it's the book of Hebrews. And I thank you for the, the grace that just comes out again and again and again. And even, even in the warning passages, Father, there's, there's grace in, in every text. I thank you for the warnings that we have. We want to pay attention to them. We want to take heed. We want to be diligent. But in that diligence, Father, comes your grace, that these things are possible because you're a God of grace. So open our eyes, show us what we need to see, work in our hearts, Father. Thank you that you are the God who's at work in us, both to will and to work of your good pleasure. And so, Father, as we obey this verse, it's you working through us. Open our eyes to see these things and how they come together. We thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. <laughs> All right, and so... We saw last week in uh, verses 9 and 10, really 8, 9, and 10, that the, the idea of rest is more than just moving into a land and, and being in the geographic will of God and being where you're supposed to be. It's more than just earthly application. It's not, we don't want to get confused because Israel was an earthly nation and they had an earthly land and they had earthly promises of rest. With those earthly promises of rest were spiritual promises of rest. And although Joshua gave them a military victory and Joshua gave them a political nation, we see very clearly in verse 8, Joshua did not give them the spiritual rest that uh, you and I can have today and that we're commanded to have today. It says in verse 8, if Joshua had given them rest, he, that's the Lord, would not have spoken of another day after that, we wouldn't have all the Psalm 95 quotations that we have from David's uh, promise or from David's exhortation. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, if you would hear his voice. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. So we do have an application to make. Israel also has an application to make. And they will make their application in the uh, tribulation when they're going to faith rest like never before. And uh, faith resting so as to survive the tribulation, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And all Israel will be saved as believing Israel will uh, not only faith rest through the tribulation, but they will then rest entering into their kingdom for the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's a, that's a different message, but it's important that we understand that because they do have a future. They are the earthly people of God and there is a Sabbath rest that remains for them. We, however, are the heavenly people of God, and there is a Sabbath rest that remains for us, and we should enter into it, we should enter into it day after day as long as it's called today. 
And uh, we've gone through this uh, over and over and over again. I don't mind repeating it over and over and over again because the verses in this chapter repeat it over and over and over again. All right, so it's a built-in redundancy just right there in uh, the repetitive nature that this verse hammers away, this chapter hammers away at it. So there does remain a rest. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, and we're going to enter into it today. And here's how. We saw this last week, verse 10, the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. That's the how-to. That's the significant mechanism by which we do it. We, look, we go back to Genesis 2 and we see how did God enter into his rest? How did God stop? How did he bless a day? How did he sanctify a day? How did he praise himself for the great things he had done? right? He looked upon all that he had made and behold, it was very good. And so he stopped. He stopped to praise himself. He, he sanctified that seventh day and he blessed that seventh day. So if we're going to enter into rest as he entered into his, we need to do the same activities. We need to thank, we need to bless, we need to sanctify, and we need to acknowledge that everything God does is good. And we need to stop our own work. We need to stop our own work, acknowledge that what God does is good, and watch how He works in and through us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. All right? Because until you do that, you're not Sabbath resting. As long as you're still trying to fix things in your own human effort, you're not Sabbath resting. As long as you think you're smart enough to solve this problem, you're not faith resting. You need to stop what you're doing right here, right now. Stop from your work. Sanctify the day. Praise God, that is, give Him the glory, and watch Him do the work. When you do that, you've just entered into your Sabbath rest, as verse 10 defines it. And you can do that today. You can do that right now. You can do that all day, every day. It's, uh, you don't have to wait. You know, the, the Jews had a, a Saturday was their, was their Sabbath day, one day a week. For us, it's today, day after day, as long as it's called today. So therefore... Since it's available and since it's so easy, why don't you do it? (laughs) Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest. It's available, it's simple, but it's not always easy. It requires diligence. And that's where we left off and what I want to pick up on here today. It requires diligence. What is diligence? Diligence is a hard-working endeavor. Diligence is a hard-working endeavor. The, the verb is spudazo. And we can, we've done word studies on this in the past. Uh, this hour is not always a, a very exegetical hour, so we don't put some of the vocabulary up there. But essentially, that's what you have there. Some diligence verses to remind you that the Bible expects us to be diligent. The Bible commands us to be diligent, and far too few obey those commands. Far too many Christians are happy to be saved They're thrilled about going to heaven when they die because, I mean, seriously, who wants to go to hell when they die? But in the meantime, they have no interest in the hard work of diligence. That is just, that's just out of the question. That's, 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 uh, it's not worth it to them. They don't understand why they have to put so much effort into their Christian walk. I mean, after all, salvation was easy. It was free. And I didn't do any work for my salvation. And so all I had to do was learn that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And I learned that, and then I believed, and I placed my faith in Jesus Christ, and boom, I have eternal life forever. How easy is that? Was was there diligence required there? Was there work required there? Was there effort required there? Absolutely not. And praise God, absolutely not. We're all saved by grace through faith, no works whatsoever. However, the believers that think it stays that way for the rest of their walk, they got to learn differently, all right? Because the rest of our walk is a walk of working. We have, we're saved unto good works, which are prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We have to fulfill the assignments that He's given for us. There's a lot of things we're expected to do once we have eternal life, see? And that's not, you know, retroactively trying to make it up to God or pay Him back or it's not, it's, it's always by grace, but we, we're not working afterwards to, to earn it retroactively or to try to make it up to God. We're working diligently afterwards because that's what's fitting, That's what's appropriate. That's what's proper. 
That's the walk that's worthy of the calling with which we've been called. This is what allows us to be imitators of Christ. Was Christ a slug or was Christ diligent? Okay? If Christ was a slug, he wouldn't have gone to the cross. But he was diligent. We need to be diligent if we're imitators of Christ. And so diligence is a hard-working endeavor. And I'm going to show you these verses. You know most of them already anyway. We're going to show you these verses and hopefully it's going to spark a recognition that, you know what? I'm supposed to be diligent. I'm supposed to be hardworking. I'm supposed to be, I can't be a slug with respect to this. If I'm a slug, then I'm not an imitator of Christ as far as that goes. Now, does that seem awkward? Does it seem oxymoronic? The Bible is telling you, work hard to rest. <laughs> be diligent to enter into his rest. So be diligent. And that's what we see here, all right? The same verb, by the way, is going to come back in chapter 6 in another warning passage. In chapter 6, we've got uh, the early verses that have a warning that really scares a lot of people in verses 1 through 8. It's not going to scare us because we're solid and, and uh, by the time we get to chapter 6, we're going to be really solid that nothing in this book is scaring a believer to lose their salvation. Um, but there are things that go with salvation, and in Hebrews 6, 9, it says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, although we are speaking in this way. And so talking to redeemed people, talking to beloved, you have to warn believers to walk like believers. Jesus didn't save you so you could walk like an unbeliever. He saved you so you can walk like a born-again, redeemed saint. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown towards His name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. I love that. It's not just the track record of what you used to do, having ministered, but it's still ministering to the saints. We're not allowed to retire early. Christians aren't allowed to draw a line and say, well, I've done enough, it's somebody else's turn. All right? It's having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence. This is the same term, the spudazo vocabulary that we have in chapter 4, all right? And so this is, this is uh, the author's wish for his readers that they not just give up, that they not just retire or stop what they're doing, or that they say, you know, I've, I've laid up enough, that's enough. I've, I've, you know, I've had, how many years have I had? How many you know, what have I done? You know, if I'm an evangelist, how many have I led to Christ? Isn't that enough? You know, is an evangelist happy with whatever number he's at? Does he even keep track? Is a pastor happy with the number of sermons he's preached, right? If he even keeps track. If, the, if, if, you've, if you get content with what you've done and then you just stop and say, well, I'm content with that, what are you doing that for? You're not dead yet. You're still on earth. There's still work to be done. Everything you th- that you've done up till now you think that's enough? Are you kidding me? That's just preparing you for what's coming up. You're now equipped to handle the, the really big things on the way. And so I, I like the fact that verse 10 says, in having ministered, that's past, and in still ministering to the saints. The work goes on. The work goes on, okay? And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end Okay? We're not at the end yet. Not until rapture or physical death. We're still here. There's still work to be done. So it requires diligence. You know, this is a theme that Paul was very fond of, and uh, people will point to this if they think Paul is the author of Hebrews because there are two spudazo uses in Hebrews, and, and, uh, and Paul is fond of it. <clears throat> Romans 12, 8. I don't think Paul is the author of Hebrews, but I think Luke or Barnabas, either one, were close associates with Paul, and it's not surprising that they use similar vocabulary. <clears throat> Romans 12, verse 8. This is in a summary of spiritual gifts, by the way. So we all have a different gift, and we're to use them accordingly. If service in his serving, he who teaches in his teaching, he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality. This is a great verse for how to be a liberal. And uh, it's the gift of giving in support of the local church. How about that? Those are the good liberals. Then there's verse uh, 8. He who exhorts, he who gives, he who leads with diligence. With 
diligence. He who shows mercy with cheerfulness. Okay, that goes well with the do all things without grumbling or disputing. Same chapter. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be devoted to one another in brotherly love. This is such a powerful text. This is showing brothers and sisters how to relate to one another in a local church. You can't obey this command if you're Joe Hermit Christian living in a cave. You've got to be in community. You've got to be in a flock with other brothers and sisters. So you can be devoted to them. They can be devoted to you. It's a win-win. Give preference to one another in honor. Not lagging behind in diligence. So I tell you, if you can find a verse that says kick back and be a slug, I'd like to see it because I haven't found it yet. And uh, again and again and again we have expectations to diligence. Fervent in spirit serving the Lord. You know that might be those two key phrases there. Fervent in spirit serving the Lord. Those are probably the two reasons why we quit being, being diligent. We, uh, we stop being filled with the Spirit. And so if we're in the power of the flesh, how diligent are we going to be? And we take our eyes off the Lord. We, we stop serving the Lord. See, when we're serving one another, we're serving the Lord. If I'm serving the Lord, then I'm going to be diligent. If I view you as if you were the Lord Himself, then you're worthy of a whole lot more than I'm presently doing right now. <laughs> you know? If, if it was Jesus in front of you, would you do it? Okay? You know, are we serving one another or are we serving Jesus? Okay? If you get subjective about it and you get your eyes off the Lord, you start looking at the person, that's a problem. Because then you're looking at the person and it becomes subjective. And then you start thinking, well, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> well, you know, come on. Like those parables Jesus spoke about. It's late at night. I'm already in bed. My shoes are off. The door is locked. The kids are asleep. You want me to do what? Why are you calling my cell phone? I need to come pick you up where? You know, wait a minute. Are you kidding me? I look like Uber or something? I mean, come on. (laughs) Now, that's if I'm carnal. That's if I'm human. That's if I'm doing things with grumbling and disputing. Now, if, what if I'm talking to Jesus on the phone? How fast can I be there? Okay? Yes, sir, on my way. (laughs) Yes, Lord. Shoes are on now. Okay? And uh, think about it. Do you go the extra mile if it's Jesus? Well, guess what? It is Jesus. It is Jesus. Fervent in spirit serving the Lord helps uh, motivate our diligence. 2 Timothy chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4. What are we looking at in 2 Timothy? We're looking at Paul's last will and testament. We're looking at Paul's closing arguments. We're looking at the final words that he has. He's hoping Timothy will come to him before it's too late, but Timothy might not make it in time. And so these could be the very last words that Paul ever has for Timothy, his protege, his child in the faith, this young man that is going to be a faithful pastor in his own generation. And he has to be told again and again and again and again about diligence. And I kind of wonder if maybe that's an indicator of Timothy's, you know, we got other clues and maybe he was timid or maybe he was um, not as assertive as Titus, certainly. Um, And so if he was timid, if he was shy, if he didn't like confrontation, then, uh, you know, laziness is a good way to avoid confrontation. And Paul says you can't do it. You're a pastor, you've got to be diligent. And so um, We've got again and again the the term is used throughout this book four times in Second Timothy, starting in uh, with the example of uh, Anesiphorus. Verse fifteen of Second Timothy one says, "You are aware of the fact that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygellus and Hermogenes. The Lord grant mercy to the house of Anesiphorus, for he often refreshed me, and he was not ashamed of my chains." But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. That eagerly searched for me, that's our spudazzo here. That's what we should be doing to enter into rest. We should be striving to enter into rest like Anesiphorus was hunting high and low to try to find the Apostle Paul. What do you mean he's in jail? What jail? Where? What what visiting hours? Who do I got to talk to? What centurion's in charge? And uh, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know very well what services he rendered 
at Ephesus. So here's a hero and uh, an example of that diligence. In chapter 2 and verse 15, the one that immediately crosses your mind when you think diligence, right? Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. This is the Iwana verse. If you were, were part of the Iwana program as a child or your kids were, right? All workmen are not ashamed. That's the Iwana acronym. And it comes from this verse. But it means be diligent. Be diligent. It doesn't say be entertained. The, the local church is not a place for entertainment. If you want entertainment, go watch a baseball game or go to a movie or what, you know, whatever. Play Scrabble, Monday Night Scrabble Club or whatever. Great entertainment available. We're here to present ourselves workmen to be uh, not ashamed. Present yourself to God as a workman. That means you present yourself. That means you're here. That means you step forward. You, you know, <laughs> in the army, you, the, 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 and I'm sure the Navy's the same way, and the, you know, you, you learn, never, never volunteer. Never step forward. Never raise your hand, right? The drill sergeant says, I need a volunteer. You know, and the six guys in your row step back, and that leaves you the one stepping forward, right? <laughs> and, you know, but for the Lord, be diligent to present yourself a workman. When, uh, when the Lord says, who shall I send? Are we going to be like Isaiah and say, here I am, send me? Or are we going to hang our heads and mumble and not be diligent? We're supposed to be diligent. Workmen not needing to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. That's why we're here this morning. We're here to get the word of truth, to accurately handle it, to rightly divide it so that we are equipped to do the work requires diligence. Chapter 4, verse 9. Make every effort to come to me soon. He doesn't realize, I mean, he knows he's going to die. It's been revealed to him that he will be executed. There is no release this time, unlike his previous imprisonments uh, where it was up in the air. And this imprisonment is not up in the air. He knows he's, he's about to be executed. So he wants Timothy to hurry. Make every effort to come to me soon. For Demas, having loved this present world, there's another indicator of something that will keep you from being diligent. Deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens has gone to, Dal- to Galatia. Titus to Dalmatia. Only Luke is with me. So who do we think was the scribe for 2 Timothy? Yeah, only Luke is with me. He was the amanuensis for First and Second Timothy. Pick up Mark and bring him with you for he is useful to me for service. Who's useful? The diligent are useful. The slugs are not. All right, there's more there, but that's our use. Now we get down to verse 21. Make every effort. Let me back up. Verse 19, he says, Greet Prisca and Aquila in the household of Anesiphorus. Erastus remained at Corinth. We know from another text, he was the treasurer. He was the city treasurer at Corinth. How powerful is that? Wouldn't it be great if the Texas comptroller was a member of Austin Bible Church or, you know? Anyway, we'd probably figure out the paperwork. Um, That's Erastus, though, by the way. It's a great example. I've had people tell me, no born-again believer should ever be in political office. And I said, okay, well then give me your sharpie. I'm going to start marking verses out of the Bible here. Because Erastus had no business being the city treasurer. Trophimus, I left sick at Miletus. See, the gift of healing was already fading away in this stage of the, of the church. Make every effort to come before winter. This is Spudazzo again. Eubulus greets you, also Pudens and Linus and Claudia and all the brethren. So make every effort, make every effort. And this, is, this gives us that sense of urgency. Because if you're not there quickly enough, if you're not there quickly enough, you know, you, you call your sisters because it looks like this is the night mom's going to pass away and they, they buy their plane tickets and, you know, you just can't get from Seattle to Austin like that. And, and by the time they get there, well, I'm glad you're here, but you didn't make it. Mom's, mom's gone. Okay. Paul was urging Timothy, come as fast as you can, come as fast as you can, come as fast as you can. In the ancient world, traffic, you know, travel from <laughs> Ephesus to Rome took a bit. Okay. That's the diligence the eagerness, the, the urgency, the sense of urgency that we're supposed to have to enter into that rest. Work hard to enter rest. Make it a focus. When you wake up today, today is going to be a faith rest day. 
you know. And if you have to break it down in the segments, break it down in the segments. At lunch, remind yourself, all right, this afternoon is going to be a faith rest afternoon. Remind yourself at dinner, all right, this evening is going to be a faith rest evening. And just make, be diligent to enter into that rest. And if you find that you've fallen out of that rest, get back right, right back into it again. Be diligent to enter that rest. And it says, be diligent to enter that rest lest. There's a lest here. The lest means because if you don't, here's what happens. That's what lest is all about. And it, this is an if not then kind of contingency, right? Let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. If you choose to not enter into faith rest, all right, that's a sin, it's a sin of omission, but it has other consequences, including falling, falling through following the same example of disobedience. When you choose to not enter into faith rest, when you were told to be diligent, here's what's going to happen. See, you're already carnal, and it's going to get worse. Falling through following the same example of disobedience, falling in the wilderness, bitten by serpents, perishing through all these other judgments, temporal judgments, the hand of God's discipline. Again, none of them went back to Egypt, right? You read the Exodus? You read the fact that the, the, the water parted, they walked through, the waters crashed back down? Did, it never got reparted again after that. It's only happened once. Redemption's a one-way street. They all died in the wilderness. That's the point. They weren't returned to Egypt. They weren't returned to bondage. The, the Red Sea wasn't reparted. Their salvation was not undone. They remained a redeemed people, but they remained a redeemed people that God was angry with. And a redeemed people God was angry with came under the hand of God's discipline. And He disciplined them in ways that the, the Egyptians never got, even in all their plagues. See, this becomes the point. So we don't want to follow that same example. We don't want to die in our wilderness. We don't want to come under His own hand of judgment in our wilderness. Let's get out of the wilderness. Let's enter into rest. We can do so today. So God, uh, and and as it says here, no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. Isn't that great? We have examples. We have examples. We have Bible stories. We have illustrations. We have patterns. We have types. And God designed it that way. And and if, you know, I've I've known believers, doctrinal type, that, that love the categories, they love the exegesis, they love the points, they love the, the systematic points. Um, they, they, they don't like the stories. They don't like, they feel insulted. They feel like, come on, we're not in Sunday school. We're not children. We don't need stories. Give us meat. We need doctrine. Give us doctrine. Give us exegesis. Give us categories. Okay, how about we get all of it? And the stories, okay? And... Uh, because the, the examples are there for our instruction. There's doctrine in the stories. They reinforce one another. So, we have examples through following the same example of disobedience. And, you know what else? The fact that He's given us the example means we're doubly accountable. Because we've got the example and the doctrine. We've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. Again and again and again. You know, you can read about, that's why younger siblings have uh, the advantage over older siblings. I, I was the firstborn and, and I blessed all three of my younger siblings. They, they learned what the hand of parental discipline was all about. And they said, we don't want to be like that knucklehead and all the times, I mean, spent more time grounded than ungrounded if you totaled it all up in the, my career as a child. All right. And so younger siblings, they look and they say, oh, you mean if I do this, this, and this, then I'm going to be in trouble? Okay, I'm not going to do all that, okay? Or they learn how to be sneakier and, and not get caught. But, ex- but Ezekiel teaches this. It talks to, to Jerusalem and, and says, your older sister, Samaria, she didn't learn, and look what happened to her. And now look what you're doing. Your older sister played the harlot, and you're playing a double harlot, and you should, have learned. you should have learned from that example. 
And so we have examples. And examples are good. Bible stories are great. John 13, verse 15. And I learned a long time ago, I, wanna, I don't want to neglect the stories. I don't want to neglect Bible reading. I don't want to neglect... I want my flock to be reading the Bible. I want my flock to know the stories and not be embarrassed. John 13, 15. Here's Jesus. And he gets up from dinner and he takes off his garments. He wraps a towel around himself. He starts to wash their feet. Why is he doing that? Well, he says, um, I gave you an example. I gave you an example that you should do as I did to you. We're supposed to serve one another. We're supposed to love one another. He says, you, you see what I've done to you? Verse 12, do you know what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. This is the story that goes with the doctrine about non-hypocritical love in Romans 8. And so, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master. You think you're above? What are you above? What is your pride above? What do you, uh, you know, you won't stoop to do something. Well, what is that? What are you not willing to stoop to do? Because what was Jesus not willing to stoop to do? Do you think you're entitled? You're claiming some kind of exemption or privilege that Jesus didn't claim? How do you rate? How do I rate if Jesus has to do this? So he gives us an example. Hebrews 4.11, again, it's an example. There's good examples, there's bad examples. Imitate the good examples, avoid the bad examples. And when he gives an example of disobedience, when he gives an example of dying in the wilderness, when he gives an example of grumbling, don't do that. All right? You've got an example. Avoid the wrong examples, follow the right examples. And there you go. It's simple. But not always easy. Okay? Same with entering into rest. It's simple, but it's not always easy. How about Hebrews 8 5? Hebrews 8 5. Talking about the tabernacle. What was the tabernacle? It was a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. Just as Moses was warned by God when he was about to erect the tabernacle, he said, See, he says, that you make all things according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. You know, like an architect. And he says, hey, look at this. Here's the blueprints. And you get to see the full heavenly schematics. And say, all right, now go make me a replica. Okay? Go make a replica of what you were shown. Moses was shown the heavenly reality. And that's why he constructed the, he was told to, to construct the, the tabernacle based on that pattern. See? Like if you want to go see the Parthenon, you don't have to go to Greece. There's a replica in uh, Nashville, Tennessee. A lot easier to get to than Greece. Okay? <laughs> Also, the replica they built uh, wasn't destroyed. Okay, you go you go to you go to Athens and there's ruins that are there. Okay, when you go to Nashville, Tennessee, the replica they built is to scale. It is a scale life size, uh, you know, uh, Parthenon, and it's intact. It's intact. Everything. I mean, it's just neat to look at. That's what the tabernacle was. A replica. An example. The heavenly example set the pattern. The tabernacle then was the replica. Chapter 9, verse 23. You know, why was... Uh, there sure was an awful lot of blood in the Old Testament. They, they killed a lot of animals. They, uh, they sprinkled blood on all kinds of altars and veils and, and the mercy seat and different places. Why? Well, it was necessary. Hebrews 9.23 says it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And so the doctrine of what they were supposed to learn in the Old Testament had a reality. All that animal ritual was going to teach a reality. And when Jesus died on the cross and when Jesus ascended to heaven, Jesus had work to do in heaven to cleanse that heavenly temple. And it wasn't with the blood of bulls and goats that did it. 
He, he, he appeared in the presence of God Himself. As we see in verse 24, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands. I, mean, I know I'm getting ahead of myself. Just This is a tease for what we're going to have when we get to chapter 9. Jesus did not enter the earthly replica. He had no business in there. He wasn't a Levite. He was from Judah. His, his tribe had no business even being a priest. But He hangs on the cross. He, he buys our salvation and more. He does so much more work on the cross. And the veil of the temple was rent in two. Rent in two, exposed for the nakedness of what it was, and he didn't go in there, had no business going in there, didn't need to go in there. Instead, he rose on the third day and he ascended to heaven because there was work to be done there. And that's what this chapter talks about. He, went, he didn't go into the replica, he went to the true heaven itself to appear in the presence of God for us, for our sake, on our behalf. And uh, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that's not his own. You know, that replica, all that is is a picture. It's a portrayal. They do it over and over and over again every year. Here it comes again, Day of Atonement. Every year, Day of Atonement. Every year, they slaughter an animal that's not the high priest. He carries it in there. But Jesus, once and for all, once and for all, So Jesus doesn't have to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but it's once at the consummation of the ages. He has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Oh, that's powerful. I love that. I love that. That's a a deep doctrine. We'll get there. Lord willing, rapture pending. All right. Um, There's more examples in James 5.10. There's examples in 2 Peter 2.6. We get this. We learn by example. We make application we make application. James 5.10 As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. There's your example. And uh, what's that example? Well, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were uh, mistreated. Okay, They were thrown to the beasts. Think about every wicked thing that ever happened to a prophet, an Old Testament prophet. And uh, that's your example. So quit complaining. (laughs) Okay? That's verse 9. Do not complain, brethren, against one another. So there's an example. 2 Peter 2.6. The last of these. God did not spare angels when they sinned. That's verse 4. Remember the angels that made babies with human women? Um, Produced the Nephilim in Genesis chapter 6. Well, they were not spared. They were judged. And he cast them into hell, committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Also, he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes... Why did he do this? Notice though, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. And there's the example. You say, well, you know, had there been ten righteous, they could have been saved. Had, had he sent miracles, they could have been saved. Jesus said if the Capernaum miracles had been done in, in Sodom, they would have repented. They would have repented and, and still exist to this day. And yet the plan of God didn't call for that. The plan of God called for their destruction. And so uh, how many died? Do, do we, there's different estimates. Archaeology has different estimates on, on the population. And so whatever. 50,000 people died, 100,000 people died, a million people died. Billions have been warned ever since. For 4,000 years now, the Sodom and Gomorrah stories and the sanctification doctrine have made the point loud and clear. Okay, and uh, you want to follow that example, follow that example, but there's judgment. There is judgment for being a sodomite. And these things happen as an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter. So God instructs us through His written text, God instructs us by example. Which too, by the way, is why we should be examples 
pastors, deacons, older believers to younger believers, parents to their children, grandparents, older women to younger women, we're all expected to set the example, are we not? Why is that? Because it's instructive. It goes hand in hand with the Word of God. And so we, uh, we have lives that are examples that are in conformity to the, uh, to the written Word, unless we're, we're hypocrites. You can't teach one thing and live something else. You've got to live what you're teaching and you're setting the example. All right. Now, as you're setting the example, as we're diligent to enter into rest, here's this famous verse. And this famous verse, by the way, is not the first verse of the book. <laughs> um, it actually is an explanatory verse. It starts with a four. It starts with a four by way of explanation, or four you see, and so it comes in the um, it comes in the in the immediate context with verse eleven, with the expectation that we're going to be diligent, we're not going to fall through following the same example of disobedience, and where do we learn about that example? In the Bible. And so the Word of God is that the Bible, is that Jesus. All right, or both in, in uh, application. So th- let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience for the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, uh, spirit of both joints and marrow and able, there's that word again, able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Why is that verse following verse 11? Because there's no lies. There's no excuses. If you disobey, the Word of God is going to convict you. It's going to nail you. It's going to pierce right where it needs to pierce. The Word of God is the standard and you've been served. (laughs) Okay, You've been warned. We have the admonition to enter into rest and not fall through the example of disobedience. And if we do fall, we can't blame our ignorance or say, oh, well, I didn't know. The Word of God is going to expose that. It's going to expose that. It's going to convict us in in all things because there's no creature hidden from His sight. All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. That's a bad translation. That's a Well, it's not a bad. It's just a it's an awkward translation because it's idiomatic and English struggles with it. Okay? All things are open and laid bare to the eyes of Him to whom to us the Word. To whom to us the Word. And that doesn't make any sense, so what do we do with that? <laughs> to whom to us the Word. But it's, 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 it's poetic. It, verse 12 has halagos. Verse 13 ends with halagos. We just have a halagos sandwich here between verse 12 and verse 13. Okay? Because we have living is the word. So verse 12 opens with living, but it has halagos very quickly. And then verse 13 ends with halagos. All right. When we're looking at it, though, it's not the four that comes first. It's not the word that comes first. It's not God that comes first. It's living that comes first. And this is, uh, this is I think, kind of fun. Living comes first. Set apart from active and sharper. And it's set apart for a reason. Living comes first. And it is set apart from active and sharper. Okay? And I want us to see this. Because living is at the forefront Living is at the forefront in throughout the book of Hebrews. Living is at the forefront for God, but living is at the forefront for us as well. This is not a book that's warning us how to not lose our salvation. This is a book telling us how to live, how we walk in the newness of life, how we operate as living sacrifices, how we serve the living God, how we walk in the living and abiding Word of God. Living, 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 living throughout the book of Hebrews. It's all about living. And it comes first, set apart from active and sharper. As I'm looking at the English text, it almost seems like, okay, the Word of God is alive and powerful, right? 
And that seems like a linked tandem. It seems like it's just closely connected. It's like Batman and Robin, salt and pepper. It's like, uh, you know, alive and powerful. There's a website I like called aliveandpowerful.com, right? Or .org or one of those. Anyway, it's a dispensational Bible study website. That's not the text from the Greek in this verse. The text in the Greek from this verse does not link active and sharper together like a, like a, a duo, tandem. It actually puts the zone right up front. Now you may not be able to read that. I'm going to read it for you. I just want you to see it. But the first word there starts with a Z, right? The Greek zeta. That's zone. It's a participle of Zoe. My daughter's name is Zoe. Zoe is life. Zao is Zao is the verb to live. And however long you lived with biological life, the day you re- believed in Jesus, guess what? That was the beginning of your Zoe life. When you believe in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. The only life that's ever called eternal is Zoe life. And the Word of God is living, not biologically living, Zoe living. And so it's zone. That's the present participle, present active participle from zao. So it's zone. Zone gar halagos tu theu. Zone. You can all read that, right? Zone. To be fair, it's only the Z that looks like a Z. Okay, that's not a W. That's an omega. It's a long O, and that's not a V. It's a new, so it's an N. I realize it looks like ZWV. So I don't want anybody to sit here and read Zwiv. Okay? It's not ZWV, it's Zeta Omega Nu, and it's Zone. Z O N, Zone. Right? That's us. Zone. We're in the zone. This is the living and abiding Word of God. This is living. And then there's Gar. Gamma, Alpha, Rho, G-A-R. That's the four. That's the explanation. Four. So, zone, gar, ha, logos, tu, theu. Living for the Word of God. Okay? Living comes first. It's placed way up front in the sentence. Greek lets you do that. English doesn't let you do that. Okay? English is a word order language and we're very dependent on where, where words are placed. But in, in Greek, you can put words up to the front, put words back to the end. You can do all kinds of things, move them around. And so um, living the Word of God and working and sharper. Kai energes, kai tamodoros. Tamodoros. All right, so living comes first, and it's set apart from active and sharper. And matter of fact, not only is it set apart from uh, active and sharper, but active and sharper themselves are rather linked. The, the uh, active and sharper are linked with a, with a pair of, of, of ands, right? Kai energes, kai poderos, tom odoros, okay? It's an and, and. And then sometimes that's rendered as a both and. Living, the Word of God is living, both active and sharper. Both active and sharper. So the Word of God is living. Active and sharper. Now I'm going to get to more detail on this depending on, well, here in a moment. Let me just get there. Understand living comes first. Okay? And it has to. Absolutely has to. For our walk, for the, for the unbelievers we're dealing with, the living has to come first. <laughs> if, if they're not saved yet, why are you preaching a biblical morality to them? Are you kidding me? Living comes first. If they are dead in their transgressions and sins, don't be shocked if they're functioning like unbelievers because they are unbelievers. That's what they're doing. So they got a long list of sins. They like doing them. They feel good. And you're uh, some kind of a judgmental jerk for telling them that they're, they got to quit doing that. Okay? Living comes first. Now they are sins. I'm not going to deny that they're sins, but I'm going to tell them their hope is not to quit sinning. 
Their hope is to believe in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. Once they have the life, once they are saved, once they are living, now, after that, we can start talking about the after effects, the consequences, living that way. Now that you have a life, let me show you the, the life that's compatible. Let me show you why those things are sin. Let, me, let, let the Word of God start to transform your thinking so that all you know, the things that used to appeal to you will grow strangely dim. Okay? Living comes first. Then uh, we talk about the active and sharper Word of God. We'll talk about that too. All right. And so, um, what do we deal with here? Well, just as the chapter 3 warning referenced the living God, the chapter 4 warning references the living Word. We've got such a parallel between 3.12 and 4.12. It's curious to me. Chapter 3 had a serious warning, and in chapter 3 it referenced the living God. Remember that? Hebrews 3.12, Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from who? The living God. This is the emphasis here in Hebrews. Living. The living God, the living Word, our living uh, priesthood. The problem with the Aaronic priesthood is they, they kept dying. <laughs> they had to get a new one. And the high priest would die and you have to get a new one. The high priest would die. His son gets promoted. Okay, here's the new one. He's good as long as he lasts, but then, you know, he's going to die and got to get a new one. I mean, the Old Testament, think about it. The Old Testament is just full of blood and it's full of death. And every sacrifice, you know, all right, let's kill some more animals. Let's kill some more animals. It's just, there's, there's death throughout. Our priesthood? Any death happening here today? We walk in the newness of life. We present our bodies as living and holy sacrifices. We have this life. The only death that happens is we put to death the deeds of the flesh because we're walking in the newness of life. That's marvelous. Again, I've observed. I I look around a lot, especially when we have visitors, you never know, but nobody brought a goat. Nobody brought a a, a bull or a ram. We're not butchering anything today. Okay? Because ours is the New Testament. And here's why. Because the shadow doctrine of the Old Testament is fulfilled eternally in Jesus Christ. Don't ever let some liar tell you because, oh, well, that was old-fashioned and we've become modern. Oh, well, we did away with, with animal ritual because that was primitive and now we're modern. No, that's ridiculous. That's up from the pit of hell. Animal ritual is done for now coming back by the way in the millennium but animal ritual is done for now because christ is the end of the law for all who believe because all the doctrine that ritual foreshadowed was fulfilled in jesus christ when he died on the cross not because it was primitive and old-fashioned and we're we're past that now okay don't don't let them get away with that stop them in their tracks and say no because they're going to use the same kind of stupid logic and lie to tell you that, well, yeah, but all those other things about homosexuality and premarital sex and all this, that's all just primitive, old-fashioned stuff. We're past all that now. We're modern now. Okay? Anyway. Just as the chapter 3 warning referenced the living God, the chapter 4 warning references the living Word, this living emphasis continues throughout the book. We're going to hit it again and again and again in chapter 7, in chapter 9, in chapter 10, in chapter 12. We were in chapter 9 not long, just a few minutes ago, right? We were in chapter 9. Did you notice? I probably didn't stress it. But there's the living emphasis there in that chapter. So let's see him again. So chapter 7 and verse 8. We're talking about Melchizedek in this chapter and how Abraham paid him tithes and and uh, how Levi receives tithes. But notice uh, verse 8 says, in this case, mortal men receive tithes, but in that case, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives on. The example of Melchizedek lives on. The Bible never records Melchizedek's death. And that's on purpose so that the example lives on. The illustration of Jesus who lives on. 
verse 25 of chapter 7. Here's what I was talking about earlier. Uh, In verse 23, the former priests on the one hand existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. That's why you needed more of them. But Jesus, on the other hand, because He continues forever, holds His priesthood permanently. Wow. So what's the better deal? Okay. Right. I mean, exactly. If, if the guy's never going to die, then you got him forever. And if he's the guarantee of your salvation, love that, don't you? Isn't that a marvelous thing? My childhood church is looking for a pastor. They've had two in 50 years since 1968. And so the last time they formed a pulpit committee was 1989. It's been a while. You don't get a lot of practice, a lot of experience when you have two pastors in 50 years. And it's interesting to me. In fact, the chairman, they appointed uh, a committee chairman for the public committee, and it's a kid I grew up, a kid I grew up with. He's <laughs> not a kid anymore. And I thought, wow, here's a whole generation. Okay. Well, Jesus abides forever. And so, sure, you had the former priests in greater numbers, We have Jesus, one, one sacrifice for all time. We have the apostle and high priest of our confession. Therefore, verse 25, he is able also to save forever. You got an old King James with you this morning? Who's got the Elizabethan King James in this room right here, right now? Does it say save to the uttermost? Save to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God. See, not every King James has that too, by the way. Folks don't realize that the most common King James is 1789. It's not 1611. Anyway, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives. Here's the participle of Zao again. He always lives to make intercession for them. We have the living Savior, the living God, the living Word. This is our walk. It's powerful. Chapter 9, verse 14 and verse 17. Verse 13 says, If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh. I mean, it was functional. It worked back in the day. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Okay? The zone theos, the living God. This is what we do. We serve the living God because of our living Savior and His once and for all sacrifice. Verse 17, uh, let's see. There's a death. Verse 15, for this reason, He is the mediator of a new covenant. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. You ever read somebody's will before they die? I mean, you can read it, but you don't, do you execute it before they die? What if he changes it before he dies? <laughs> what if you think you're in the will and Ooh, that's going to be an ugly... Let me uh, get rid of that. But I mean, just think about it. Things can change. He might write a new will. He might write a new will. Anyway, and then he dies. Once he's dead, then the executor will execute the will. The last one. The last will in Testament, right? The previous ones are, are uh, null. They're They're voided. The last one is the one that's, that's executed. Well, guess what? Jesus died. <laughs> the terms are set. His blood is the blood of the covenant. And uh, anyway, we have uh, the fact that he died, but he didn't stay dead. That's kind of fun. And uh, the covenant is valid only when men are dead. It is never in force while the one who made it lives. Okay? That's how things normally work for human covenants. 
Anyway, there's some fun doctrine there. We'll handle that when we get to chapter 9. Jesus died. The covenant's in effect, but he didn't stay dead, so now we can get past that and move on. Chapter 10 and verse 20. More living. Verse 19 says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, we have confidence. We get to do what no Old Testament believer could ever do. You know, the high priest could go into the holy place once, one day a year. One guy, one day a year, once, okay? With blood not his own. And he went in by himself. What do we get to do? Jesus went in once and for all and cleansed it, and he went in on our behalf. We get to go in with him. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus by a new and living way. It's not just a new way. It's not just that the church is new and it's better than Israel and our reality is better than than their reality or that our reality is better than their shadows or that our doctrine is better than their stories or any of that. It's a new way. Yes, it's new. But it's also living. It is a new and living way. We're going to stress that. The living way, which He inaugurated for us through the veil. And what's the veil? His flesh. Not His work. Not the shedding of the blood. Not the spiritual death. Not the sacrifice. His flesh is the veil. Wow. Now there's some doctrine. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near. And so we do draw near. When we get down to verse 31... It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You think it was terrifying for the high priest to go into the Holy of Holies? If he did one step wrong, he was going to be struck dead. If he failed to follow the right procedures, if he went in with the wrong sacrifice, Nadab and Abihu brought strange fire. Look what happened to them. It's terrifying to, to, uh, to uh, approach the Shekinah glory presence in the Old Testament. It's more terrifying for you and me. And yet we have confidence. We enter in and uh, we want to be diligent. We can't, uh, we can't go on sinning willfully. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. The fact that He is living adds to the terror. You know, seriously. How much terror was there for the pagans of idolatry? You know, I mean, seriously? That dead idol? What's He going to do to me? You know? That dead idol of stone, really? I kind of think most of the pagans weren't really all that worked up about their idolatry. After all, it's just a statue. You move them around from place to place, knock them over if you want to. But the living God? Oh. Okay, the living God. Uh, Verse 38, also chapter 10 here. Uh, My righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is not a verse telling you how to get saved. Well, I mean, it is. It's quoting it. But in the application of this chapter, it's how do we live our life? How do we live our life? How do we live in diligence here and now, serving the living God? Chapter 12 has has two more uses of of za'o. Two more living uses in chapter 12. Furthermore, verse 9 says, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Was your father strict growing up? It's a good thing. And we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? I think a lot of Christians aren't really living. They're not living the life they should be living. For they disciplined us for a short time it seemed best to them. Still in chapter uh, 12, down to verse 22. You have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the myriad of angels. You thought it was was intimidating to go to Mount Sinai when the the smoke was flaming and the trumpet was blasting and and, uh, all of Israel was scared and told Moses, go up there and come back and tell us what he tells you. Well, we're coming. coming. That, That was nothing compared to what we come to. We come to heaven itself the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the myriads of angels. 
to the general assembly, the church of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, to the sprinkled blood, which speaks better than the blood of Abel. So stay tuned. We've got that coming up. There's a living emphasis throughout the book of Hebrews, and it starts here. We got the living God, we got the living word. The word of God is living. Now, next week we're going to come back and we're going to ask ourselves Word of God or Word of God? Capital W, lowercase w. When we say Logos to Theo, are we talking about the Bible or are we talking about Jesus? Because in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. We're talking about Jesus or the Bible. Does the Word of God judge us or does Jesus judge us? Or both, because all judgments given to the Son and the standard is the Word of God. But God the Son quite clearly is the Word. In John 1, 1 Peter 1, 1 John 1, Revelation 19, His name is called the Word of God. Is He alive and powerful? Is Jesus alive and powerful? Is the Bible alive and powerful? Is Jesus sharper than a two-edged sword? Jesus has a lot of swords come from His mouth. Or is this really only the written word or the spoken word or both? And then we'll talk about living and active. Okay? Because, you know, if you live long enough, you're not as active as you used to be. (laughs) And if you live long enough, you're not as sharp as you used to be. Okay? I'm just saying. So, uh, you may not want to come back next week. We're going to talk about some people, things, as they age, yeah, they're still living, but they're not as active, they're not as sharp. And yet, the living and abiding Word of God, guess what? The living God, the living Word, is alive and sharp. The living Word is alive and sharp. That's what we'll be dealing with next week. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for your faithfulness. Father, uh, we love this. We love your word. We love how plain it is and how it speaks to us. Humble us, Father, to receive it, to live it out. It's the living word and we want to live it. So, Father, thank you for making these things possible, for saving us by your grace, for giving us your Holy Spirit. Father, I thank you that in the church age, every believer priest is saved, that's saved, that has eternal life, has the Holy Spirit permanently indwelling us. I thank you that as we confess our sins, we're restored to fellowship and not only are we indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we're also filled with the Holy Spirit. And Father, what a blessing. So we can walk by the Spirit. We can learn the Word. We can live the Word. All of this is because you're a God of grace. Thank you, Father. Thank you for the book of Hebrews making these things so, so clear. Might we understand them? Might we live them? Might we appreciate them? And Father, if there's anyone here this morning that maybe this is the first time they're ever even hearing this, they thought going to heaven was trying to be a good person. Father, may this be the day that the gospel pierces that veil of darkness. Right here, right now, right where you sit, you can believe in Jesus Christ and receive eternal life. Thank you, Father, for making it so simple. We thank you and we praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are going to dismiss with our closing hymn. We have a hymn.